Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And when you find that, stand with me to read God's Word. We'll be reading verses 33 to 37 in Matthew chapter 12. What words reveal. These are the words of Jesus. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your good word that is powerful in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness, which is powerful. For the many words that we speak that are, are useless. And Lord, we pray that you would cleanse us today. We pray, Lord, that as we even anticipate coming to your table in a while, we pray, Lord, that you would make us sensitive to to the condition of our hearts and to what you want to do in us and through us for your glory. Lord, we commit ourselves to you and pray that you would truly have your way with us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 12, 33 to 37 highlights what words reveal. Words matter. They are significant. They are weighty. They are important. They are powerful. They can be used to build up or tear down. They can be used to make or destroy reputation. They can be used for good or evil. Big truths and big lies are perpetuated through words. Now you may have heard the saying, the big lie. That if you repeat a lie enough times and with enough strength, that people will eventually believe it as truth. Nero used a big lie against Christians, blaming them for the fire that destroyed Rome. Hitler used a big lie against the Jews, blaming them for the economic troubles of post-World War I Germany. And the Pharisees used lies against Jesus, saying that he was evil, saying that he did what he did by Satan's power. Words reveal. They show where we're really coming from. They, they actually show where we're going as well. On the heels of his discussion of the unpardonable sin, now Jesus launches into a discussion about words. Words, how they affect and reveal things about us spiritually. Jesus says we will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that we have spoken. Every one of them. Praise God that Jesus, the truth, overcomes all lies. But Jesus has an agenda for us as it pertains to our words. He knows best. He is God. He is preeminent. 
He's Lord over all. And so we, we want to know what, what is it that, that Jesus wants of us? What does He want to do in us and through us? And what He wants in the context of our words. Now here in, in Matthew 12, the context is, is regarding those who reject who Jesus is and what He does. And what we see here in these few short verses today is that Jesus wants us to realize that our words reveal the truth about us so that we would turn and believe the truth about Him. So that we would not buy into big lies about Jesus, but rather cling to Him and believe His word which reveals the truth about Him. Now the Pharisees wanted people to believe lies about Jesus so that they could control them, could enslave them. Jesus wants to set people free by His truth. So He reveals to us some truths about what words reveal. So what do words reveal? Well, I want to point out three things that these verses show that our words reveal. The first thing that, that words reveal is our true condition. Our true condition. They, they reveal our character. They reveal our true identity. They basically reveal who we really are. The words that we choose to speak re- reveal who we really are. Now, Jesus uses trees as example. Since a tree is known or identified by the kind of fruit that it produces, it's very, a very simple and, and easily uh, grasped illustration here. Uh, and he says in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, because those two go together, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. Those two go together. And then he says, because the tree is known by its fruit. Such an obvious point. Now Jesus is using, uh, kind of repeating a statement that he made earlier. If you look over in Matthew 7, he said a very similar thing in Matthew 7 and verse 17. He said, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You're going to know who people really are by what comes out in their life. Now, bad fruit is decaying, rotten fruit. You don't want to eat that. You want to stay away from that. You don't want to clean that up in your backyard. Now, Decaying rotten fruit is unfit to eat. It's basically useless. And, and think of it this way. Jesus says the tree is known by its fruit, therefore the people are known by what comes out of their life. Uh, you got a reputation. Every one of us has a reputation, and, and we're known by our conduct. A reputation is built on real, observable actions, which includes our words. James talks about our words and says that from the same mouth can't come uh, both blessing and curses, but often it does. I mean, someone could be so sweet uh, to you in words and inside they're cutting you like with a knife. And, uh, 
If someone could work so hard at being, you know, nice all the time, and then in a moment where they let their guard down, out comes the most filthy uh, words and content, and, and it happens more often than not, uh, it, and it really is, it shows when it becomes a pattern of a person's life, it shows who they really are. Now, Jesus is using fruit trees for examples. In my in my, my rather small backyard, I've got an apple tree, a lime tree, a mandarin orange tree, a, a, a apricot tree, a lemon tree. We've got all those trees. And, and, I, and I don't expect, you know, the, the apricot tree to, to bring forth apples because if it did bring forth apples, I would automatically know that's an apple tree. So my apple tree right now has some apples on it, and, and it's very clear uh, to, to anyone looking at it that it, it's an apple tree. It just shows the true identity. It's, it's, it's what you come to expect um, because it is what it is. So a person's true identity is revealed in what they say. Our words prove who we really are and they reveal our true condition. And in an ultimate way, it is either we are either saved or unsaved. We are either lost or found. We are either believing or unbelieving. The second thing that our words reveal, and it's a somewhat interrelated idea is that it it reveals our true convictions what we truly uh, believe in in our hearts uh, our real thoughts about God and about others and about ourselves verse 34 is really strong words Jesus says you brood of vipers Uh, those are strong words we we don't speak that way i don't want to say what what the equivalent might be but you brood of vipers he says how can you speak good when you're evil because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks and and brood of vipers means more than you might think we tend to think of of it mean as a bunch of vipers a, a whole bunch of vipers um but it doesn't just mean a a bunch of vipers but what is produced by vipers which would be the offspring of vipers, which is snakes. And it, 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 means, it means that that, that which originates from vipers. And Jesus is basically saying that they are the, the children of Satan. Now they have just accused him of doing a miracle by Satan's power, which was a lie. Jesus now is, is pointing to the Pharisees and letting them know that they are truly from Satan. It's like the Saab commercials, you know, the born, born of jets. Well, well, Jesus is addressing those who are born of Satan. And, and Jesus is talking to them just like John the Baptist did in, in Matthew 3 and verse 7, when he also called them a brood of vipers. And he asked them a question, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says, and you ought to bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. So if you claim to have any change in your life, it's going to show in, in the way you live. John the Baptist and Jesus didn't pretend. Jesus is not pretending with the Pharisees to try to somehow get them on his side. Jesus didn't pretend that they were really with him. He said it like it really was. He told the truth. He said, you're a brood of vipers. You're from, you're from Satan, basically. He didn't give them any false and misleading hope. 
They had chosen to join Satan's team. It was obvious. So he called it like it was. They had accused Jesus of doing evil and and that, that proved that they had evil in their hearts. And so Jesus calls them a brood of vipers. Now, a lot of people will say, well, hey, I want to imitate Jesus and look what he did. So I'm going to go around to everyone and tell them exactly what I think of them and tell them exactly what they're, they're you know, like. And this is where we need to be careful. Uh, we must be really careful to exercise wisdom and discretion in imitating Jesus on this point. Not because it wasn't good and right what he did. Everything Jesus did was perfect. The sinless Son of God always did what was good and right. But the reason why we need to exercise caution here is because He is God and we are not. And He knows people's hearts and we do not. So we will run the risk and most, most, uh, most of the time we would be calling it the wrong way because we see it by uh, appearance when we know that God looks on the heart. God sees the heart. We only see the outward appearance. And so we need to exercise extreme caution when confronting. I'll tell you a good example from the Bible is Acts chapter 23. Paul, he is being brought before uh, the, the, uh, uh, a group of people, and he calls the high priest Ananias a whitewashed wall. Okay? And he was chastised for it. He didn't really know who he was speaking to at that point. And so he apologized. He actually was, was struck on the face because of what he said. And instead of defending himself, he admitted that he shouldn't have said what he said. And he used a Bible verse uh, to, to make his point. He quoted Exodus twenty two twenty eight that talks about where well, you should not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But the idea here is that Jesus knows the hearts of all. Paul surely didn't, and, and we surely don't. So we must be very careful. But Jesus says the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The, it, it speaks from the abundance. It speaks from the overflow, from the, from the excess of what is in our hearts. It spills over. Now the heart is... Is, the, is not the idea of, of, the, emo, of the feelings, but it's, it's the center of our human personality. It's, it's our thoughts. What we think in our hearts. It drives our words. Our mouth reveals what is in our hearts. We say what we really mean. Now, a lot of people will joke around and say, well, I didn't really mean it. But even so, you really do mean some of it. But it's your way of maybe saying it in a way that Maybe we'll diffuse a little bit of the, of, the, of the stress of the situation. See, Jesus knows our thoughts. We saw that back in verse 25. And he basically says our words reveal our thoughts. And he says in verse 35 that the good person brings out of his good treasure what is good. The whole idea of the, the treasure there is, is your, your thoughts, what you're treasuring in your heart, what, what you're thinking, what you're believing. Uh, the good person uh, out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So you've got good and evil people, good and evil treasure, and bringing forth good and evil, and it all matches up. The heart, basically, it speaks of the, the heart uh, is throwing forth or spurting out. Uh, the Greek word is ekbalo. It, 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 it's spurting forth what reflects inside the heart. It basically produces according to the supply within. Whatever's in there is going to come out. And the mouth reveals what's in the heart. 
And, and Jesus basically says, how can, you, how can you even bring forth what is good? And we've got to ask that question. How can we, who we know, we can say some pretty, uh, you know, uh, horrendous things at times. How can we say anything good? It's only by a change of heart. It's only by a change of heart that we're able to do anything good. And, and, and the only way a person can bring anything good out from a good treasure is, is to truly believe. Is to, is to be born again by the Spirit of God. You will not be able in your own strength to work yourself into doing good and being good in your heart or, or in your actions. That's why people who are not born again have a really hard time keeping up appearances. And there's a lot of people who are, are born again who are not walking by the Spirit and therefore operating in the flesh and have a hard time keeping up appearances. It's as the Spirit says um, in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36. Here's what God says will happen. He says, I will, Ezekiel 36, 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Power is going to be coming from God. It's a whole idea of regeneration. It's a whole idea of being born again. Our words reveal what is in our hearts. Words reveal the evil hearts of the spiritually dead and the renewed hearts of the spiritually reborn. They reveal your true beliefs. Your real convictions. There's a third thing our words reveal, and it, it, it is also related. It reveals our true commitment. Where our true commitment lies. Who we're really following. Who we're really following. Verse 36, it talks about how we're going to give an account for our words. Jesus says, and this is tough words for us to hear. He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. You notice that there's a, he turns a corner here, and he's not speaking specifically of the Pharisees anymore, but he's speaking in a generality about all people, that people are going to give an account for every careless word they speak. And to give an account means to give an answer. We're going to be asked a question, and we're going to have to answer. It's every idle word. It's Greek, it's rhema argon. What it means is a word that doesn't work. A word that is ineffective, it is useless, it is non-working. It's a word that does no good. It says that on the day of judgment, we come before God and we are called to give an account. Think about it today. And you might even be sending something right now in the form of words. Maybe you're sending a text right now. Maybe you're... But, right, but think about this for a moment. Our words, audibly and in print and electronically, can go around the world instantly. The moment you press send. You know how many times you wish you had those back? 
So therefore, we must, let, we must let our speech always be seasoned with grace. We must be very careful, especially in this world of instant words that can go anywhere, literally. And verse 37 shows us that the verdict about that we, the verdict that we come to about Jesus reveals the verdict of Jesus about us. His prior verdict about us. Here's what, he, here's what Jesus says. He says, For by your words you will be justified, or literally um, shown to be right, and by your words you will be condemned, literally to, show, to be wrong. By your words you'll be justified or condemned. And, and, and you've got to take these in the context here. And here, here's the way it would read in the context here is this. By your words about Jesus, you will be justified, declared to be right. Or by your words about Jesus, you will be condemned, declared to be in the wrong. Because it matters what you think and therefore say about Jesus, which drives everything else about you. Your words reveal who you're truly committed to. Our words about Jesus reveal our decisive conclusions about him. What we really think. So what a person says about Jesus, about who he is and what he does, reveals what a person is and they are going to be judged accordingly. So if we believe good about Jesus, it's going to come out. It's bound to come out. If we believe evil about Jesus, it's bound to come out. If we persist in unbelief, our words will continue to reveal it. If we oppose him, we're going to give an account. Those destined for destruction are going to continue in further ungodliness. The scriptures tell us that their words are going to spread like cancer. And those who are born again will have a track record for the most part, of good words. They may fall into patterns of speaking in unhealthy ways and destructive words, but they will not be controlled or defined by it. But the main, the main point about our words here, in this context, is that what we have to say about Jesus matters. And it matters supremely significant because it reveals our true condition it, it reveals who we really are and what we really believe and who we really are committed to who we really are following and there are very serious implications to these words these are uh, again we, we haven't read many joking words from jesus have we these are serious words from jesus that re, that that that, that, um, that demand a serious response you know, we can't walk away from this and say, it doesn't really matter. Because it does. Now, there are, there are implications here for believers and unbelievers. But let me speak first if you're an unbeliever, if you, if you don't know Jesus. If it, here's the, the deal, and it's really, really clear, and here's the thing. People who don't know Jesus know this is true. If you don't know Jesus, you're not playing on his team. 
We're a sports-oriented society. At least I know I am. And, and, uh, and I, I know if you, don't, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're not on his team. Therefore, as we saw last week, because there's no neutrality, with, no, no, no neutral position with regard to Jesus. You can't just be in the middle and go, oh, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm indifferent. Basically, you're either on Satan's team or Jesus' team. There's only two teams. Okay? Now, if that's the case for you, you have several ifs to consider. Several ifs. First of all, if you persist in unbelief and insist on not believing, you will die in your sins without hope. Period. End of story. And you will be lost for eternity. If you do not turn from your sins and, and repent, that's what repent means, turn from your sins, you're, you're going to hell. That's the truth. If you are starting to change your mind about that, it's a good sign that God is doing something in your heart. See, what believers find out after the fact is that God was doing something to turn us toward him. And so maybe, if that's the case for you, God may be doing a, a, a work in you to give you a new start with a new heart to believe. That would be wonderful. So, if you're not a believer, I'm going to invite you right now to make a decisive decision for Jesus. To take a decisive stand in your heart and then in your life to believe in Jesus. And what that means is saying to God in your own words, I have sinned. I am lost. I need you. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and took my place so that I could live with you forever. Basically, you need to believe. The scriptures tell us, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's a good thing. People have a lot of trouble saying, well, you just called me a sinner. You just said I'm going to go to hell. I'm trying, we're trying to save you from, from going to hell. <laughs> That's a good thing. You know, would someone get mad at you for trying to save them from a burning building? Now, there are also implications for believers. And that's what the bulk of our, our time is going to be focused upon now. Because the bulk of the people in here are, by their own admission, believers. Let's talk about it. First of all, believers. As you're dealing with unbelievers, you see them all the time. You might live with some. You work with them. You go to school with them. You live next to them. Believers and unbelievers are interacting all the time, as it should be. But it is misleading and it does a disservice to an unbeliever to make them think they are saved when they are not. To somehow soften, you know, round the edges, bullnose the edges so that they kind of think they're in, but they're really not. So tell the truth to those outside of Christ so that they can choose which way they're going to go. So that you have, you, they have a very clear path before them. Either go this way or that way. There's not 25 roads to God. There's one way to Jesus. 
But, but here's the deal. If you look back with me at, at verses 37, uh, 36 and 37, they implicate all of us, not just those who do not believe. The question we must ask is, what does it take to be a good steward of the life that God has given me? What does it take to use words that reveal a sensitive heart to God? Because that's where we live, right? We, we are people of unclean lips who live among a people of unclean lips, just like, like uh, I, Isaiah said. So, I'll give you three things. The first thing. The first thing. Now remember, verse 36. Verse 36 says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account. And then it says, by, verse 37, by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Okay? So the first thing you need is this. A clear understanding of who you are because of Christ. And a realistic grasp of your accountability to God. That was a twofer there, right? There's really two things. I give you it in one. A clear understanding of who you are because of Christ and a realistic grasp of your accountability to God. So the first part of that is a thankful versus a defiant posture toward God. That's a sign of new life, by the way. A thankful posture towards God is a sign of new life. A defiant posture towards God is a sign of of spiritual death. If you are not wanting God to rule in your life, it's a sign that you're spiritually dead. So recognize that if you are a Christian, that you are a Christian because of Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. So he he made it up, he he started it, and he's going to take it to completion. And he started you on the journey, and he will see it to its conclusion. But then you also need a sober-minded stance towards God. A very clear understanding is necessary. It's evidenced by a healthy fear of God that leads you to trust God to bear the fruit of good works and good words that inspire you to train your tongue to bring forth what is good. That's tough. That's tough. A thankful, sober-minded stance reflects a sensitive heart to God Just like Isaiah said, uh, he sees God sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and he says, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and all the people I live around are too. And I, I know this because my eyes have seen the Lord. See, a clear picture of God gives us a very clear picture of ourselves. And we see we we fall woefully short. But what you see in all who have been humbled by God is that they humble themselves before God. You know, uh, spring cleaning is coming. For many people, uh, garage sales will abound, right? And, and, and here's the deal, is that uh, spiritually speaking, the spring is always in the air if you, in this regard. You've got to, to clean out the doubtful things in your life. You've got to recognize what they are and get rid of them. Some of us are like keepers, right? Oh, me, that's what I, I like to keep stuff. Oh, I might need this someday. Don't keep the doubtful things. You don't need it. It only messes you up. Okay. The second thing. What, what you need is a firm commitment to Jesus and his word. A firm commitment to Jesus and his word. 
It's like John who was in exile on the, on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, we see it in the book of Revelation. Why was he there? The, it, the Bible tells us very clearly because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's why he was there. He loved Jesus and the word of God. But the Pharisees did not. And that led them to say many things against Jesus because it's what they believed. It's who they were. It was their identity, their true condition, their true conviction, their true commitment was shown very clearly. They loved themselves more. Couldn't be clearer. But all who claim allegiance to Jesus must love him supremely and must treasure his word, his good word. And to pull that off in a God-forsaking culture is hard work. It takes a strong commitment to engaging the whole Bible, the complete Bible, in context, not just the parts that make us feel good or the parts that make us feel bad. All of it. All of it. Not just our favorites. We need to stand firmly on Christ, the living word, as revealed in the written word of God, and, and your words will reflect it. Your, your thoughts uh, mark your soul. Your thoughts color your soul. And, 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 and whatever your thoughts and, and beliefs are, they're, it's going to come out in your words. Ephesians 4.29 tells us that, that we ought not to let any unwholesome word proceed from our mouths, but we, we know we do all the time. But we're supposed to have the words come out that are good for building others up, but we know we tear people down with our words. James 1 says to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I wish I could remember that. It's easy right now. Harder later on. It's harder when you're not here. James chapter 3. Go there with me. James chapter 3. Basically, don't sin with your tongue. Don't sin with your words. Uh, the tongue is a fire. It's the very world of iniquity. James 3, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. We all know that, don't we? Christians know it more than anybody because they got the Holy Spirit convicting them. I don't know any, any I don't know many, I'll say many, not any. I, I, I don't know many Christians who are proud of heart. Most of the Christians I know, it includes you, is you're humble in heart and you know because you've got the Holy Spirit in you and you know when you've stepped out of line. And you confess it, and you admit it, and you repent, and you keep going. You claim the forgiveness of Christ, and you go. That's what you're supposed to do. I commend you in that. But here it says, we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Complete, mature man. And it says we put bits in the mouths of horses so they would obey, and we guide the whole body. Look at the ships. They use a rudder. But the tongue is a small member, but it boasts of great things. How, how great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. The tongue is a fire, the world of unrighteousness. The tongue, verse 6, is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the course of life, set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Remember that. You cannot tame your tongue. 
but we're not hopeless. See, the tongue says it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image of God. But we cannot tame our tongues. Only God can tame our tongues. And when God is in our life and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, then we, have, we can exercise self-control, but we don't do it on our own. It's spirit-produced self-control, the fruit of the Spirit, right? So let me ask you a question about self-control. And by the way, I'll just say this. We Christians are so continually reminded by the Holy Spirit of the sin in our hearts, aren't we? I know I am. And we, we, we can't deny it. We know it's true. And, and what do we do in response? We, we've got to run to Jesus. We've got to run straight to him, our only hope. And, and receive mercy and grace and walk in the forgiveness and cleansing that he offers. But we've got to also hold our tongue. There's that part of us that we've got to make the decision, the choice. I don't do a very good job of that, by the way. But this, uh, there's anger, there's resentment, there's bitterness. But let me ask you a question. How, how far back do you need to go to your last experience of anger or bitterness or resentment in your life? How far back do you need to go? Half an hour? 45 minutes? 10 days? 2 years? Wouldn't that be nice? Or foolish words spoken without a thought. Peter said many foolish words. Unnecessary things, things he later regretted. And they're recorded for posterity in the Bible. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter says he had this great idea. Let's set up three little shrines for, for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. When Jesus predicted his suffering on the cross, Peter, rebu- Peter rebukes Jesus. Uh, here's what he said. Never, Lord. Two words that should never be together. Never, Lord. Jesus rebuked Peter as if he was Satan. He had to. In the upper room, Peter refused to have his feet washed by Jesus. But what a change Jesus makes. Now, here's a man who walked daily with Jesus several years but what a change Jesus makes when Peter was born again by the spirit of God and remember what what Peter said in in 1st Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ post-resurrection Peter was a different man He was reinstated by Jesus and his words were no longer careless. But as the Holy Spirit spoke through him, his words were filled with power and truth. And you see it in the book of Acts. Where in chapter 2, he took his stand, literally bold and authoritatively took his stand. And he stood in God's strength and he proclaimed the life-giving gospel of the grace of God in Christ. He delivered God's word boldly to spiritually needy people. And he centered his heart-piercing message on the gospel. He centered it on Jesus and him crucified. In Acts chapter 4, Peter stood up boldly and in 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 the front of the same people who accused Jesus of doing miracles from Satan's power. After a man had been healed, 
in front of the very people that had accused Jesus, he counteracted their big lie with a big truth. Acts 4. Acts 4, and and let me just read a couple verses to you there. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, he says, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's what Peter said. Paul was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor against Christ and his church. But he was turned by God to become a bright and shining light for Christ. He had a firm commitment to Jesus and his word. We do too. We need that. Last thing. Last thing that you need is friends. You need friends I've got a friend who tells me that he doesn't have very many friends that he has more friends than most people I know you need friends you need friends in this context that we were just been reading there are groupings of people and they influence each other call them friends call them acquaintances call them co-belligerents call them whatever you want they are together And they are keeping each other on track either for good or for evil. The Pharisees aligned with Satan were for evil. The disciples aligned with Jesus were for good. But you cannot stay long in isolation. You need family members and friends and others who are spiritually on the same path as you, going in the same direction. Basically, you need to keep, you need to make and keep friends in Christ. Too many men don't make friends. Too many men are in isolation. Ladies are the same way, but I'm a man, so I can speak to the men on this one. Too many men are friendless, and they, they, they are just content to stay that way. You need to make and keep friends in Christ, because without them you will flounder, but with, with ungodly ones you will fall, but with Christ-centered, humble, bold, gospel-changed servant leader friends you're going to flourish there were, last week there was this man that was riding his bike on a mountain hill mountain road coming down a mountain and he, he was going too fast around a turn and he went over the cliff 300 feet he survived he broke a lot of bones in the process but he survived but wouldn't it have been awesome if there were guardrails there on, on that road? You could have caught him, could have stopped him. Godly friends are like, like guardrails in your life. You need them. It keeps you from going over a cliff, spiritually speaking. They're not afraid to challenge you to get rid of questionable things in your life. 
But without the safety net of godly friends, many professing believers have fallen by the wayside. They have suffered shipwreck in, in regard to their faith. They, and it's evidenced by their words, which is the outflow of their hearts. That's what we're seeing today. So you need friends who will consistently point you to Jesus. That you need trusted friends that will tell you the truth, unafraid about the truth in your life. Because they love you so much. Friends by which you can experience the complete Bible in context, in community. One of my favorite writers, uh, Andre Sue. Uh, wrote, she wrote this. She says, pray to have friends, at least one, who have more faith than you do. It is much easier to understand the scriptures when you have a living, breathing, walking example beside you. Specify that it be a friend who knows how to do spiritual warfare, like how to employ the weaponry of truth and promises to argue himself from a spirit of heaviness to a place of joy. He will have details and experiences, not vague generalities. She also said this. She said, faith-filled friends give a godly infection. There's a lot of people sick right now. If you are, you need to stay home. Come back when you're well. But nobody wants to be infected by a sick person. Nobody. Everybody, though, should want to be affected by someone who's healthy. In a good way. You need friends for the journey that will help you stay on track and put a muzzle on words that are untrue and unworthy of the one who claims allegiance to Christ. Period. See, Jesus wants us to realize that our words reveal the truth about us so that we would basically run to him and believe the truth about him. 